welcome back to the Vermin's Podcast. We thought we'd be back in September, but that was not to be. However, here we are at last. We are not animal experts, but every episode we're going to do our best to educate ourselves and you, the listener, about all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet one animal at a time. Varmint's podcast is on all the social things. You can find a list of them at linktree slash Varmint's podcast. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Varmint's podcast. Or use your very favorite search engine and you will find us. Our cast of weirdos is me, Donna. Then we have Moss, Megan, and Kurt. Say hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Today, yeah, all at the same time, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like he practiced yeah, that'll it. That'll cause a backup. <laughs> Today, we're talking about domestic sheep. But first, the news. This comes from September 13th of 2022, and it is from the New York Post. Wendy Wason posts pic of sheep standing on friend's Airbnb bed. You guys can open up the file and look at the sheep if you want. Oh my gosh, there's a sheep standing on that Airbnb bed. It's not something you would ever expect to find when you check into an Airbnb, but one tourist was left shocked. Unsurprisingly, when she arrived at the property in Wales to find a sheep standing on one of the beds. And while people can come across strange things in hotels and holiday rentals, livestock has to be pretty far down on the list, one would hope. Sharing an image of the ovine intruder to Twitter, Scottish comedian and actress Wendy Wayson said it was her friend who had the unexpected encounter while vacationing in Wales. This should cheer you up. My friend went to Wales and checked into her Airbnb. And look who was waiting for her. Wendy wrote alongside a snap of the sheep on the bed. <laughs> it looks like a really happy sheep. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Airbnb. <laughs> I mean, it's Wales. How I, bet, the woman I think they give the you a complimentary of sheep bed. whenever you show up in Wales. That's right. Yeah. How the yeah, woman that got That sounds off. right. <laughs> How the woman got the sheep off of the bed and out of the room is unclear. However, many Twitter users were not shocked to learn of her Welsh experience. That is so Wales. I love that country, one person said. Person, bleh, one person said. Another wrote, if your Welsh Airbnb doesn't come with a complimentary sheep, you're not in Wales. And a third asked, is this a common amenity for vacation rentals in Wales? Wendy's posts, which has been liked 121,000 times, left others excited by the idea of sharing a room with a sheep. That's the kind of place I want to stay in, one person wrote, while another asked, where do I book? It's not the first time something like this has happened at a hotel in Wales, a country that has 10 million sheep, but only 3.1 million people. It kind of sounds like Montana, doesn't it? In 2020, footage emerged from the Premier Inn in Holyhead, North Wales, of a sheep wandering around the floor inside the building. 
The ship, nicknamed Sydney by the staff, was ushered back outside after it let itself into the hotel through the electric electric doors. (laughs) In the clip, the person taking the footage, yes, could be heard saying, oh my God, after spotting the sheep. (laughs) It was safely returned to its field (laughs) after the incident. (laughs) As opposed to like, not again. Sydney, get out of here. (laughs) If if the sheep is there often enough that they've given it a name at that point, like that's that's its home. It's an employee. You may as well get the sheep a name tag. Yeah, you should just put a name tag on its little collar. Yeah, give him a badge. Give him a lanyard. Hello, my name is Sydney, and I will help (laughs) you out today. What have our minions? Colonel Wilberforce Winchester Walsingham III here, the English walruses, and dash it all, I think it's time we learned about some animals. Thank you, Colonel Wilberforce. Today we're talking about Domestic sheep, Ovis Aries. They are relatively small ruminants. They are in the Bovidae family and the genus Caprinae. So they are related to goats. Ordinarily, they have curlyish hair called wool and frequently horns that curve into a spiral. This depends on the breed. They might have no horns or horns in both sexes or only in males. Their coloration is varied from dark brown all the way to bright white and they can be spotted or piebald even. Sheep have a great sense of smell and they have scent glands in front of their eyes and on their feet, which is super weird. Megan is gonna talk about their vision in a bit. They weigh anywhere from about 40 to 120 kilograms. That's 88 to 260 pounds. And they're about 120 to 180 centimeters or 47 inches to 70 inches tall. This varies pretty wildly between breeds. They can live 10 to 20 years or so. Sheep are herbivores. They consist of groups of females that are usually bred to a single male. And usually they are seasonal breeders, though there are a few breeds that can have babies throughout the year. Domestic sheep are diurnal, so they like hanging out and doing their sheep thing in the daytime. They're one of the earliest animals domesticated by humans along with goats. A female sheep is called a ewe. Males are called rams and babies are called lambs. A group of domestic sheep can be called a flock, a fold, a herd, and less commonly a mob, a drift, a trip, or a drove. And additionally, when a sheep is one year old, it is called a hoggett. When it is two years old, a two-tooth. And we have an additional interview with our friend Bill, who has a small sheep concern. And he said that the males that are castrated are called, was it Weathers, you guys? Can you remember? Yeah, I think it's Weathers. That sounds right. Yes. Yeah, that sounds right. Well, anyway, we won't have time to correct it if we're wrong, but uh, it's something like that. You can listen to the extra interview that we're going to put in the feed in a few days. After this recording comes out, we are going to be wrong. The confirmation. We're going to be wrong with bells on. Over to you, Megan. 
first, I just want to say that I really love like the visual that comes to my head at the like a drift of sheep. They're just there. Ooh, I know. Drifting they, along. they do kind of drift around when they're in a whole group, you know. It's nice. It's, it's really fun. Anyway. <laughs> eyes. We have them. Sheep have them. <laughs> but that's about where the similarities end. <laughs> so, sheep, uh, you may have noticed, maybe, I don't know. I don't know how many sheep you're encountering in your day-to-day -day life, but much like goats, they have rectangular pupils. They they see in they they got they got squaro vision. <laughs> and that is because they are prey animals. It's kind of like surround sound for the eyes that their field of vision is estimated to be between 270 to 320 degrees, whereas the human average is about 155. Wow. So, yeah, that it's, you know, predators got them facing forward eyes because they're going to run and hunt something down. So prey need to be able to see everywhere, which is why sheep have very good peripheral vision and can see behind themselves without turning their heads, which is terrifying to me. <laughs> that is nuts. <laughs> so the, the drawback to this is that they have very poor depth perception and they cannot see immediately in front of their noses. So like if someone's sneaking up behind them, they're going to be ready. If something's coming at them from the front, it might be a bit of an issue. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. I have no depth perception, so... I can relate, sheep. I see yeah, you, see, sheep. Oh, now, now you just gotta learn. Now you just have to learn they're to not right in front rotate of my your face. eyes behind you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you just gotta so, wonder what it feels like to have a panoramic seen. view of everything. Yeah, that's gotta be wild. It's really weird. So, sheep can only see at a distance of around 20 feet. So, Contrary to previous thought, sheep and other livestock do perceive colors. Apparently this was something that people assumed was not a thing, but they can see colors, but their color vision is not as well developed as it is in humans. Sheep can see colors like red, green, yellow, black, brown, and white. And I just want to quote this directly from my source because it, it, it gave me a chuckle. Quote, sheep will react with fear to new colors. <laughs> <laughs> you see the sheep see something purple, they're just like, what is that? What oh, is no. it? Oh no, it's yellow. <laughs> you can see this now. This is a color never before seen by the eyes of sheep. <laughs> you, show a, you show a sheep something fuchsia, you're just gonna blow its mind. <laughs> It'll be like, that color doesn't awesome. even exist. Is <laughs> HP Lovecraft for sheep? Yeah. Oh my gosh! We've got, I mean, it's like it's blueberries. We can't see them because they're blue. No, wait. We just—they just look black to us. <laughs> there you go. So the IUCN red list for domestic sheep is listed as not applicable because there are several breeds of them that are endangered, but they are not tracked by the IUCN because they're not wild animals. So I had to go do a little bit of poking around instead. 
And I found a cool article on a site called Owlcation. And this lady has an article about rare and endangered sheep breeds, which is super awesome that you should read. Uh, it is the, the Owlcation website and the, yeah, the article is just called Rare and Endangered Sheep Breeds. So look it up. Let's see. So it's sort of interesting the breeds that they were talking about. I, I was, I just took a note of one. There's several of them that are pretty interesting, but the only one that I thought was worth mentioning in the time that we have is there's this one called the Lester Longwool, which was delivered in, or developed in the 1700s in England by a guy called Robert Bakewell. And was the, he was the first to use modern livestock breeding techniques. So the Lester Longwool quickly became popular in England and across Europe. And if you look at look up Lester Longworld, it's L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R, Lester Longworld. Then they definitely have long. Okay, that makes more sense. Because like I was about to say, that's not a sheep breed. That's a storybook character. <laughs> I know. Look at him. Oh, so cute. Lester Cute. If I ever have a, anyway, a sheep so... character in a story, it's going to be named Lester Longworld. That I think that you have to now. It's just required. So the, this breed quickly became popular in England and across Europe and in colonial America and Australia. And George Washington was known to be a fan of, of Bakewell's methods and his sheep. And the Lester was used widely for crossbreeding and has contributed to the development of many later breeds. But it has unfortunately virtually disappeared from the U.S. by the 1920s. But in the 80s, Colonial Williamsburg began to look for authentic livestock breeds to stock their living history farms. And they basically they attracted in, the Lester attracted their interest because of George Washington's connection. And then they like instituted a worldwide search looking for an established flock <laughs> and then they they establish a flock at Williamsburg and several satellite flocks so that's interesting that they're doing living history and also keeping a historical sheep alive as well it's crazy it's, it's really neat but so if you ever have a chance to go out there and see Colonial Williamsburg look for the Longwell sheep because they've got a bunch of them out there they're very popular with hand spinners as well as they have good meat so they they adapt to a wide range of forage and yeah they seem like they're pretty good dual purpose sheep and they're really cute lester longwolves but there's a whole bunch these of them are that, dual are, purpose that are sheep. endangered so pretty interesting these are off-road sheep yeah mm. <laughs> i'm just imagining this google, google earth search for sheep, you know, and somebody's like spinning around Google Earth and going, okay, we're looking for these Leicester sheep, Leicester sheep. Okay, <laughs> you got to hit, zoom in, enhance. Zoom in, enhance. Sheep on a hill. Send in the drones. <laughs> we got to find these sheep. Hey, it's Lewis, the limbless lizard, here at Varmint's podcast. We're just nerds like you, and don't usually get to see animals in the wild. So let's talk about where we do get to see them, in books, movies, and um, 
video games. Today's pop culture is going to be Megan and Moss. They both got items for us. What'd you bring us, Megan? Well, there's not a not a ton of sheep media out there. <laughs> So what I bring to you today is uh, an old cartoon called Sheep in the Big City. It was by, created by Mo Williams that aired on Cartoon Network in uh, November of 2000 and then ended in April of 2002. So Sheep in the Big City uh, was here for a good time, not a long time. And it follows the adventures of a sheep trying to make his way in the big city evading a secret military organization that wants to steal sheep for their sheep-powered ray gun. It's got a sheep-shaped hole in it, which is really fun to say. It's it's just a really, it was a really fun, goofy cartoon that I remember watching when I was a kid, and the names are all really great because they're puns that the leader of the military organization is um, general-specific, and his little lackey's name is, like, Private Public. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just a goofy little show. The other thing is on the on the complete opposite side of the spectrum uh, is an A twenty four horror movie called Lamb, uh, oh. which came out in twenty twenty one, and it takes place in Iceland, and it's about like this husband and wife. And they have a sheep farm and one strange dark and stormy night one of their sheep gives birth to a to a baby a baby what what looks like a normal little baby except she do have a sheep head <laughs> God. like it's it's funny but it is also it's it's a it's a big people movie because things just sort of get weird from there sure Sure. From there, it's lamb. I'm still wanting a sheep powered ray gun. <laughs> uh, you say lamb mentable? Yes, it's lamb mentable. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. These these puns are bad. <laughs> <laughs> Utterly We're getting in sheep now. Ow. I can't help it. <laughs> There's too many opportunities. Anyway. Sorry, <laughs> she interrupted you with Lamentable. I thought that was pretty good, actually. <laughs> Yee. Well, I did watch Sheep in the City after you mentioned it. I watched a couple of episodes of it. I had never heard of it before, but that was, it, was, it is super hilarious. Yeah, not you guys not many people have. <laughs> yeah, go check it out. It's yeah, awesome. no, it's, it's super cute and worth watching. Yeah, for sure. Moss, go for it. So, my fun pop culture fact today is talking about Dolly. Dolly the sheep. A lot of people right. know about Dolly, but some folks don't. In Scotland, the f she lived in Scotland, and Dolly was the very first mammal ever cloned from an adult cell back in 1996. Announced by the Rosslyn Institute in Scotland in 1997, Dolly was the world's first mammal to be cloned. She was born July 5th in 1996 from three different mothers. Her six-year-old adult genetic mother provided the DNA. A second ewe provided the egg into which the DNA was injected 
and a third ewe of a different species carried the cloned embryo. It took 276 attempts before the experiment was finally successful. The cool part about that using the the different species of sheep is that the birth mother, ha, her species has a black face and the cloned sheep, Dolly, uh, her species has a white face. So they could tell right off the bat whether or not it was a successful cloning experiment or whether the sheep being given birth to was of the surrogate mother's same species. And I thought that was actually really clever. That's she lived super for about cool. six yeah, she lived for about six and a half years before she sadly developed a lung infection that ended her life. And just the other day, I was driving around here in suburbia, western Denver area, and I drove past a big old Dolly sheep statue, which I thought was really cool. Just randomly? So we have a... a yes. I, I was driving, I was at a stoplight, and I might have checked my Pokemon Go app for some strange reason. And if it's on a there, stoplight, it's little, okay. Yes, I was not driving. I was stopped. <laughs> and they have little spinny discs, little Pokemon Go stops. Anyway, the one that I looked at just happened to, to, to click on right there was a neat little disc. And it had a big old picture of Dolly the sheep. And it's a and it's a large statue. It's it's a little bit larger than life size. And it's uh, sitting on the corner near a little shopping mall thing. And I thought that was really neat and very propitious that I just completely out of the blue ran across the Dolly sheep statue when we were planning on talking about sheep. So it's just so it's random fat. to find this sheep statue <laughs> just hanging out there. Yep. Is her, was her yes. mother a U-Haul? <laughs> oh, oh that, that wouldn't hurt. That wouldn't hurt me physically in my actual human body. <laughs> Now, another fun fact say, that not a lot of people know. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I One was just going to say Colorado more tourist sort of available for just the weird stuff that we have. Like we have a statue of Dolly the Sheep. It seems like if you wanted to just go see weird statues while you're here, you could be like, go see Dolly, go see Lucifer, and go see the big blue bear looking in the convention center. Right? Like it's getting better and better. And then we have the big room and the big broom and dustpan out in front of the uh, art museum. Yeah, we just got weird yep. public statues. <laughs> I don't know. We it's got it all. Our, random extra facts. Yeah, they're kind of everywhere. <laughs> oh, no, I, I also ran across a, a fact that I, I didn't know initially, uh, but when I was doing some additional poking around, I also learned that apparently Dolly the Sheep was named after ultra-famous country singer Dolly Parton. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. And and it was because she her the cell that she was actually cloned from came from a mammary gland cell. Oh, <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. <laughs> but I, I have to admit that gave me quite the chuckle when I put two and two together. I'm like, oh, OK, that's pretty good. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I forgot. I forgot to mention Kurt was doing something. I just looked at the script. Yes, Kurt, why don't you go ahead and do your thing now? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> do my thing. What's my thing? Someone tell me what my do thing is. Do your oh, thing. Wait. Do the thing, Kurt. Yes. Uh, okay, I like science. 
I'm sure that most of you like science. And there are, yes. in the world of science, there are frequently prizes given out for amazing world-changing research. And then there are the Ig Nobel Prizes. The Ig Nobel Prizes are given out for research, which makes you laugh and then makes you think. And surprisingly enough, there is a sheep-related Ig Nobel Prize. It was given out in 2016, I believe. I could actually look this up because I got the article open. And that's weird. Okay, analysis of the forces. Oh, it's a 2003 Ig Nobel Prize in physics. Okay, this article is from 2016. But in the year 2003, the Ig Nobel Prize in physics was won for the following article. Prepare yourselves. Analysis yes. of the forces required to drag sheep over various surfaces. <laughs> now, really, I can't imagine the sheep enjoyed this part. <laughs> well, they, they, I mean, you, they, you have to flip sheep over to, to shear them and do things like that. And so, what they were doing was they were testing the biomechanical processes involved in sheep shearing, basically, so as to have the least detrimental impact on either the human doing the dragging or the sheep being dragged. <laughs> So yes, it's like okay. Now we're dragging the sheep over grass. Now we're dragging the sheep over an ice rink. Now we're dragging, <laughs> now we're dragging sheep over. over, over yeah. So yeah, it was a sheep drag show. Well, how did? <laughs> but how did they measure the resistance? Like, how did they know? Uh, well, actually, it's actually not that hard to measure the force required to drag something over a surface. What you do is you take like a meat scale, and you know you put the harness on the sheep and you hook the meat scale to the sheep, and you pull them using the scale. And oh, okay. wherever, it, wherever it locks, that's how much force it required before the sheep starts moving. That's how much force it requ is required to make the sheep move. Okay. Because you're yeah. measuring forces, you know, the force of drag is the same thing as, the force of dragging something is the same as its weight, so. Wow. So was, um, was the goal of this to, to assist with removing sheep's wool or well why I'm were we dragging sheep across surfaces well when you are like i said when you're trying to shear the sheep you have to drag you have to put you have to manipulate the sheep on a table or something or possibly on the ground i don't know and so when you're wanting to move the sheep from point a to point b you want to have the least amount of strain on the person doing the dragging and the least amount of force being applied to the sheep being dragged so they had sheep okay. drag races. <laughs> I see. Yes. They got an Ig Nobel Prize. That's pretty that's awesome. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that's what the, uh, it, the Ig Nobel Prize is given out to, 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 I forget by which university, MIT, I believe. Oh, wait, that's not it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it is MIT. So, <laughs> okay. Very prestigious university giving out these prizes for science done weird. Yes, I remember I listened to, I think it was a Radiolab episode several years ago where they featured an ignoble prize by a Japanese team of scientists who'd been studying a slime mold. And the, the scientist had put together a little song <laughs> when they accepted <laughs> their reward. It was really funny. 
That's Look so it up. good. Give it a listen. Nice. It's so much fun. It's one of those things that okay. reminds you that science can be fun. Yes. For sure. Is this animal a food? What eats it? Where is it in the food chain? Am I in the food chain? You are in the food chain, bud. Sorry to tell you. So, there isn't any wild animal that has a a focus on domestic sheep. There are a lot of opportunists. This is pretty interesting. Along with parasites and disease, predation is a threat to sheep health and consequently the profitability of sheep raising. They can't defend themselves very well, so it's important to keep predation to a minimum. But the impact of predation varies really dramatically just throughout the world. It's really interesting. So one sheep flight behavior study in California has them as a major stimulus responsible for eliciting predatory behavior in coyotes. Like they're, they're, pre- they're preyed upon so much by coyotes out there that they can study their, their flight behaviors. <laughs> like it's happened so regularly oh, wow. they can use it for science. Wow. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. In North America, according to the National Agricultural Statistics Service, 2024 or two sorry 200 200, 000-ish sheep were killed in the u.s by predators in 2004 comprising approximately 37 percent of all the bovine deaths for that year and the sheep lost that year represented a sum total of 18.3 million dollars to the sheep producers coyotes were responsible for 60 percent of the deaths with the next being domestic dogs at 13 percent other North American predators of sheep include cougars, bobcats, eagles, bears, and foxes. And then the other 7% is made up of wolves, ravens, vultures, and other little animals. So most of this is just opportunistic. And it just turns out if you live in an area where there's a lot of coyotes, you know, that's going to be a bigger deal for your sheep. But if you'll go back and listen to our coyotes episode, you'll learn a whole bunch of information about them and why just killing the coyotes is not necessarily the best solution. <laughs> it turns out this is just a random extra fact to get you to go listen to Dr. Seth talk to us on that episode because that was really fun. It, it, was, it was really interesting. Go and listen to it. Turns out when you kill off coyotes, they make more coyotes. They double down. They're like, oh, there, there's not... There's too many deaths. We need to have more babies. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So in South America, the only widespread potential predators of sheep are cougars and jaguars, which are both known to prey on livestock regularly. But they also have the main wolf and they have a kind of a fox down there that's blamed for sheep deaths. But there's no evidence for a statistically significant amount of predation by most of these species. But uh, however, the culpeo is a threat to sheep and is responsible for 60% of the predator losses in Patagonia. The culpeo is an Andean fox. You you can kind of look at him. He looks like a tiny little wolf, fox, coyote, relative little guy, but very small little guy. But very good at, at kidding sheep in South America, apparently. So in South Africa, They have predation by jackals on their sheep. And 
this is in South Africa mostly. I didn't. I didn't. Th I was surprised that in Africa there was no like lions and <laughs> stuff like that as significant sheep predators. It's mostly jackals. So pretty funny. I, I thought surely there would be hyenas and stuff, but nope, mostly jackals. Australia and New Zealand have a lot of problems with dingoes and red foxes attacking their sheep. They also have wedge-tailed eagles, which are a really big bird. They will kill young sheep and they can kill sheep up to up to and including the hoggett size so that's that's pretty crazy and they have in new zealand uh an unusual parrot called the keya which is endemic to their south island and they will kill the heck out of some sheep and they have some um, feral dogs that also prey on them and in uh, britain they have Back in the day, in the past, brown bears were and wolves were predators of sheep, but those guys are gone from the British Isles now, so the sheep predators are red foxes, badgers, and eagles, and domestic dogs. Domestic dogs keep popping up. <laughs> They're like, we're hunters, we're mighty hunters, we can, we can kill sheep. And yeah, sheep you're, dogs you're don't like sheep. Get back on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> but in mainland Europe, in Greece, between 1989 and June of 1991, 21,000 sheep and goats were killed by wolves. So that's a pretty significant threat out there and uh, like much bigger than other places. In Bulgaria, golden jackals have attacked a thousand or so sheep between 1982 and 87. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then, uh, but in, in Asia, in Tibet, their most prominent predator was a snow leopard and a Eurasian lynx. So these animals that we think of as sort of rare, and they are really rare, but they're still, you know, enough of them to be a problem for sheep herds. 60% of the to total livestock losses were, were from the wolf out in Asia. So that's pretty crazy. Hmm. I wouldn't have known there were enough of them to be a problem, but there you go. So, yep. Interesting stuff. No wild animals, really, but uh, it's difficult to keep your sheep alive, apparently. <laughs> They're just so is delicious your brain and. Just a gigantic well, pile of useless information? Of course it is. That's okay, because we're here to help you win that next trivia night. Or just sound smarter than the rest of the room with this the animal fact of the week. What were you saying there, Moss? I was just saying that sheep are so delicious and killable. He's yeah, they, so, they really are delicious. You know, so. Yeah, dinner is on, okay. man. <laughs> it is for sure. Lamb kebab. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. And goats are really tasty as well. That's why we domesticated them. And Kurt's going to talk about that. Actually, let's go back and do. Let's let Moss go first with the fleeces. Oh, okay. Fleeces. Mmm. Whoa. <laughs> Cheering, all the fun that well the second other main reason we domesticated sheep way back in the wind was for their lovely lovely hairs the fibers that grow out of their skin sheep's wool is the most widely used animal fiber and is usually harvested by shearing mm -hmm. in the sheep's skin there's primary and secondary follicles and those two types of follicles grow three different types of fibers which we know is wool. Uh, 
the three types of fibers. There's one called Kemp, which is very coarse, not desirable, doesn't take dyes. You can't really do anything with it. And if there's a lot of it in your mix, it really lowers the value. The second type is called medulated fibers. And that's basically like hair. Most most other animal hair, like human hair, it'll grow long, but it lacks what they call crimp and elasticity. And then there's the good stuff. And the good stuff, the part between the primary and secondary follicles in the skin, the secondary follicles only produce true, true wool fibers. So the wool fibers is what you're really looking for. That's what makes... Uh, the best material to work uh, to produce yarn and and clothing from. Wow, cool! And it has crimp and elasticity in abundance, and the the various qualities of those are what allow wool classers, which are the people that <clears throat> that uh, grade the fleeces and the sh and the the shorn sheep wool into into value classes so right so you have That's four main categories you get a fleece yeah you got fleece you got broken you got bellies and you got locks and fleeces which are the the good part uh can then be treated in various ways to prepare them for processing which can be anything as simple as a warm bath and water or as harsh and complicated as an industrial chemical processing and the goal really is to remove some or all of the lanolin, which is the, the nice kind of tacky, sticky part of the, the sheep's wool that also is great for your hands. Uh, yeah. But you want to remove lanolin, the dead skin and sweat residue, any pesticides or vegetable matter like straw left stuck to the wool from the sheep's environment where they live. And then additionally, you can remove vegetable matter. Uh, either by carbonization or just plucking it out by hand, which will leave in a lot more of the lanolin and and, and create a, a much more uh, tacky, sticky type of, of material to, to work with. And lanolin is basically that greasy oil in the sheep's skin that coats the wool fibers as they grow. And it's used itself both for a variety of cosmetics and skincare and keeps the sheepskin healthy and it's also what makes commercial sheepskin and unscoured wool fleeces feel the way it does that kind of greasy tacky feel mm -hmm. maybe she's born with it maybe it's lanolin <laughs> well it's funny or maybe in you've his, just been fleeced historical terms oh more puns more puns in historical terms people have been using different breeds of sheep for wool manufacturing for a long, long time, which which Kurt's going to talk about how that happened. But I thought it was funny. One of the most interesting things I ever remember learning was I used to go when I was a kid, I was like, wool is so heavy and scratchy. How could like the ancient Greeks stand it? All their clothing was made of wool. It's just made my brain break. So I had to go research sheep at the library. <laughs> and then right. I found out well, that I we used to have kids... lots of different kinds of wool. And they had a really, they had breeds of sheep that produced a wool that you could make a light, airy fabric out of that was comfortable. So right, Like really high-end, really high-end wool. I mean, it, it feels heavenly. It feels like a, a yeah, soft, but light, that was everyday wool cloud. Fear, right? But, so it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I... And like well, I grew up, we always had like three or four old 
surplus store military quote unquote wool blankets. And those are the scratchy Brillo pads of my childhood that I remember sleeping in. Yeah, for sure. Why would anybody pay for these things? They're not comfortable. They are warm, but they're not comfortable and they're not soft. And they do not feel good. Their job is to keep you from dying of the cold in a muddy trench. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As well as abrade your skins for that for that healthy glow. Yeah. Another interesting (laughs) thing that I I just remembered it since we're speaking of Greece was the legend of the Golden Fleece. Right. You know, the idea that that someone had they had to go. The Golden Fleece was actually I mean, wool was so highly prized at some point in the history that they came up with this legend of needing a particular fleece in order to put a king on a throne. So, I mean, it was a, it yeah. was a cultural. Yeah, you have to have a special you know, fleece cultural for that. fabric. That's so important. Yeah. Amazing. All right, we're deep into history. Kurt, let's hear all about the history. How did sheep become livestock? And oh, how many okay, first of, of all, I was going to say that <laughs> I want to. One thing I'm going to. I got. Yeah, I'm going to talk real fast. One really cool thing I thought is like, I'm trying to think of how much is a pound? A pound is like one, if you pick up a can of Coke, that's roughly a pound. And that much wool, one pound, will get you a mile of yarn, which is insane to me. Oh, I wow. thought that had to be mentioned. Okay. Um, that's crazy. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. It's like mile of yarn. Obviously the, the, the wool is puffier than a can of Coke, but that's about the right weight. Yeah. So sheep. <laughs> There are roughly 200 breeds of sheep in the world today. That's not an exact number because right. a lot of these things overlap and there's hybrids and so on and so forth. And some are some are undercounted and some are overcounted. And there's no like there's no like worldwide sheep registry. But the number is roughly 200 breeds of sheep that are currently in in use today. Sheep were one of the earliest animals that humans domesticated right alongside goats. And the process really got started around 10,000 years ago, 10,000, 11,000 years ago. 10,500 will take an average. There was, there's one site in the middle of Turkey that spans the, the time in which sheep were being domesticated from about 10,500 to about 9,500 years ago. And the site existed for that whole period. And so they have archeological layers of information. Now in archeology, span the stuff on the bottom came first. So as you're digging down through the ground, you're going backwards in time. And in the oldest layers that they managed to find, they found, well, first thing they found was nuts and and grains and things like that that indicated agriculture had already been established. So this this was a settlement that wasn't going anywhere. But they also managed to find sheep and the bones of other animals, you know, the bones of sheep and other animals, rabbits and a whole variety of things, wild animals, hares, tortoises, fish, goats, wild cattle, deer, and of course, sheep. The most abundant of these animals was the sheep. But the thing is their distribution was much wider. And when the scientists looked at the bones of the sheep they found from this, they found that they were on a sort of bell curve. Um, You had the young ones, you had the old ones, you had the ones in the middle. So that was kind of what you'd expect from a wild population. So they think at this point, they were basically hunting the sheep because they were basically taking them at random from the population. 
And so you get the expected right. ratio. Now, as the time went on, the percentage of the various types of bones changed. For one thing, the bones of the other animals began to decrease as a percentage. So that means there were either more sheep or less of the other thing. And furthermore, the age and gender of the bones that they found changed as well. For one thing, you stopped seeing bones of older animals because once they got to a certain point, they got slaughtered and eaten. You right. also started seeing fewer <laughs> older males because the males would get slaughtered younger because they didn't need them, which indicates that the animals were probably being raised. And they found all sorts of things to indicate, you know, that this was not, I mean, it's like they, they, they found the sheep. One of, one of the best things you can find if you're an archeologist looking into animals is basically poop. <laughs> <laughs> and they found a lot of things that indicated these animals were being fed. So they probably right. were not, they were being domesticated. I mean, they probably didn't get completely domesticated during this time. They were probably still morphologically wild and possibly behaviorally wild, but they were certainly contained by this time. Ah. And so that's about a thousand years, you know, and it's like, and we have, this is all from one site. So it was really, I mean, it's really cool that people... You know, they, they apparently figured out it's a lot easier, ultimately, for me to keep this thing in a pen <laughs> so that, A, I don't have to chase it, and B, nothing else gets to chase it. Right. Which was the two benefits exactly. of, of that kind of domestication. Exactly. It's right here. I don't have to go chase Excellent. the thing when I want a snack. No, I just, oh, look, I'm going to go out to the <laughs> fridge, get myself a sheep. <laughs> Crack open a cold sheep. Yeah. That's an impressive do do record. Again? That's an impressive record to find all in a single site. Progression. Yeah, that's what, that, was the, that was the amazing thing about this site. It was that the site itself had been around for a thousand years. You know, and then wow. <laughs> I, can, I don't know how, I have no idea how deep this archaeological layer is. It must have been several feet. Right. That is crazy. It's a really long time. These are numbers that don't mean very much to people. I mean, because. Humans live, if we're lucky, a hundred years. This is ten times that. Yeah, but <laughs> that's crazy. Alrighty. Well, that is our first episode. Kind of long, but I think these episodes are going to run a little bit longer because we have a bigger cast now, guys. So, thank you so much for listening in. And we also laugh. And I'm going to roll. We do. We laugh a lot, which is good because that's the fun part. We have a lot of fun here at Varmints. It's mandatory fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going ballistic. And even a, <laughs> and even a bit of science here and there. <laughs> this science is science, dude. Right on. So everybody, well, this show is produced by me. Mutton chops. <laughs> This show was produced by me, Donna Huma, on land belonging historically to the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho Native American tribes with intro music by Infomercial USA and bed music by Dan Hennig. Our voice talent today was Kevin Framp, Stacy from the Run With Me on this podcast, Frosty, 
and Toph from the This Week Today podcast. Our logo is created by Imran Javed. And if you enjoyed the show, why not give a couple of bucks to buymeacoffee.com slash varmints podcast. The 90% of the proceeds go to the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, Colorado. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, guys. Be, be nice, nice to, to nice animals. animals. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 I'm sure they got that. Well, I should not be trying it. to harmonize. <laughs> <laughs> Any last sheep puns before we cut off this recording? <laughs> Do That's you have anything to say? Because if you, no, if you no, we don't, got, there's nothing. Then... Nothing's going to beat Kurt just bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I think I'll ram this into the podcast feed. <laughs> I hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.